0: Today is the last in this series of four talks that I've been doing on the subject of the kingdom of God, the subject which Jesus talked about more than anything else. And uh, while this short series gives us a pretty solid foundational understanding of the kingdom, um, there are, of course, many aspects of the kingdom, and uh, I will, over the coming years, be dipping in and expanding on this basic foundation. If you've missed any of the talks, it's quite helpful, actually, to get a full understanding because the talks are built more or less on one on another to actually listen to them you can watch them on the website you can listen to the mp3 or from next week we should have the CD set actually available a box set available for sale we've looked at what Jesus' hearers would have understood by his announcement of the kingdom's arrival we looked at the Old Testament pictures of the kingdom we looked at the people of Israel's expectation of what would happen when the kingdom came And then we looked at the mystery of the kingdom having arrived in Jesus but not yet being fully consummated until his second coming which of course is still future to us. And then we looked at the major events of Jesus' life, his ministry, at his death, at his resurrection, at uh, following the ascension, the day of Pentecost, which were all, uh, the Bible says, end of the world events crashing into the present in the person and ministry of Jesus. And realizing that the kingdom is now And it's also not yet. We looked at how that affects our lives. We are people of the kingdom. And so we're like the kingdom in that respect. We saw how at the same time our experience right now is that we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And we're like mixed up teenagers. We're experiencing both the realities of this age and the breaking in of the future age. And we find ourselves groaning as we wait for the kingdom to come fully. And as we move into this last talk in the series, I just want to visit again the question, what is the kingdom of God? I hear there have been a lot of conversations stimulated by this series. Uh, Over recent weeks, some of uh, you have said things like this. I love what I'm hearing, but just what exactly is the kingdom again? And just in short, the kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God. It's not a geographical region like most kingdoms are, but rather everywhere where God's will is done, where his rule and his reign is demonstrated, there is the kingdom of God. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will, of course, is done in heaven fully, and yet God's will is only partially done here on earth. There's a day coming called the day of the Lord when uh, Jesus will return All creation, whether willingly or unwillingly, will acknowledge that reign and uh, his will from that point on will be fully done. The Bible tells us at that time in the book of Revelation, it says there's a day coming when there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain. In fact, there will be no more evil and its expression, no more sickness, no more hatred, no more violence and anything which is opposed to God's nature will be swept away. And so wherever God's will is done, There is the presence of the kingdom. In those stories Pastor Daniel has told us, incredible, wonderful stories. Uh, That is the demonstration of the kingdom. That's the powers of the future age breaking into the present. God doesn't want people to be sick, doesn't want, you know, and so just breaks in with miracles and uh, and brings healing. Between Jesus' ascension and his return, these last days, we see glimpses like that of the future, the powers of the future age breaking into the present. We see the realities of the future age when God's will will be done completely, finding expression on earth as well as in heaven, but not completely. As we've said, still his will is opposed. Still we live within this clash of kingdoms. But we do see the kingdom of God triumphing over the kingdom of darkness. Over sickness, we see healing. Over violence, we see peace. Over loneliness, we see loving community. Over oppression, we see freedom. Over poverty, we find prosperity. In this world, when God's kingdom is not expressed, we see the words at the beginning of those bunch of pairs. We see sickness and violence and loneliness and oppression and poverty and so on. When the kingdom of God is expressed, we see things like healing and peace. We see loving community, freedom, and we see people prospering. And the church is the community of the kingdom. Our job is to submit ourselves fully to God's reign, to his rulership, that he would be, his kingdom would be expressed, first of all, in our own lives, and, that, and then also we would do everything we can to extend his rule here on earth in the time that we have left. And as I said, when the kingdom of God fully comes, anything which is opposed to God's nature will be swept away, and that includes what we're going to look at tonight, poverty and oppression. In the time between the times, the time in which we now live, we are called to be involved in bringing the kingdom to bear on those issues, poverty and oppression. Through the Old Testament, we see God revealing his will when it comes to the subject of the poor, those who are oppressed, those who are hungry, who are thirsty, who are without clothing, the lonely stranger, the widow, the orphan, and so on. And then in the New Testament, with the arrival of uh, the kingdom in the person and the ministry of Jesus, we see God's reign over such things demonstrated. And so he, for instance, fed thousands of hungry people. He forgave and restored social outcasts like prostitutes and sinners. He healed lepers and others who were excluded from society. And everything he preached, the message of the kingdom, was good news to the poor. And so let's take a look at how God revealed his will on this subject, the subject of the poor. And it's apparent that God takes this issue very, very seriously indeed. And Christians who ignore this, as some do, I'm afraid, are missing a major emphasis of the teachings of the Bible. I'm told there are around 2,000 references to the poor in the Scriptures, and next to idolatry, it's the most prominent subject addressed in the Bible. Evangelical churches, um, and there's a great big spectrum of evangelical churches within which we find ourselves have not historically been good at teaching on the poor. Uh, They've often left it to those of a more liberal persuasion, persuasion to engage in what they call the social gospel. So many evangelicals will say, well, let's get on with preaching the true gospel. Let's get people saved and get them to pray a sinner's prayer and get people into heaven and and let the liberals get on with all that social stuff, whether that worksy stuff of actually looking after the poor and so on. But the truth is, it is all over the pages of Scripture. I'm told that a student who was very frustrated by uh, this teaching once took a Bible and he took a pair of scissors and he cut out all the references to the poor in the whole Bible, just went right through it. The story of the good Samaritan, snip, snip, snip. Lazarus and the rich man, snip, snip, snip. You know, Jesus dividing the sheep and the goats and actually evaluating people's lives based upon how they responded and how they cared for the poor, snip, snip, snip. The apostle Paul who... uh, the apostle said to him as he took the gospel to the Gentiles, All we ask is that you remember the poor. Snip, snip, snip. Just cut all this stuff out. And then he took this Bible, completely in tatters, obviously by now, the shredded Bible, to the leaders of the church. And he said, Here is your Bible, full of holes. We want to be a people who are submitted to the whole of Scripture. And when you take a look at this, it is abundantly clear that God really has an issue with our neglecting the poor. And so I want to spend the bulk of this talk taking us on a journey through the Bible before then applying it to us as a church. If you're taking notes, you're going to have to be pretty fast watching those screens because there are some texts coming up with their references that I won't give you as I speak. If we go about 4,000 years, there's a town that most of you will have heard of, a town called Sodom. The reason it was destroyed by God, uh, many people assume, was because of their sexual depravity and all sorts of things bad stuff was going on there but it's very interesting to read the prophet the prophet ezekiel on the subject because he majors on another form of sin that they didn't help the poor this is ezekiel 16:49 now this was the sin of your sister sodom she and her daughters were arrogant overfed and unconcerned they did not help the poor and needy they were haughty and did detestable things before me Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. Now, whilst we do believe the Bible is clear that the practice of homosexuality is wrong, we don't believe it's a sin to be highlighted above all the others, you know, as some people do. And, and this text poses a very interesting question for us. Might it be, in God's eyes, that our being overfed and unconcerned and not helping the poor and needy is at least as big as an issue as any form of sexual sin might be? Just drop you in, that in, to to think about. If you heard the first talk in the series, you'll recall that when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, that God intervened in what is called the Exodus, and he set his people free, and we saw that the Exodus was a picture of God's kingship. It was a picture of his rule, and God demonstrated that he was king over all the Egyptian kings, all the Egyptian gods, rather, uh, in signs and wonders, which culminated then in the plagues, which caused eventually Pharaoh to say, okay, I've had enough, you can go. But as often happens when you actually look from another angle at an event in the Bible, something more is revealed about God, about his nature, about his dealings with his people. And in the Exodus, God was not simply moving his people out of Egypt, where, his subjects, where they were subjects of a nation that um, didn't recognize their God, and, and to travel to a land in which they could set up their, their worshiping community to worship him there. He did all that, of course, but he was also intervening, on behalf of the poor, on behalf of the oppressed. And we find in Deuteronomy 26, verse 6 says this, "'The Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, "'subjecting us to hard labor, harsh labor. "'Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, "'and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, "'our toil and our oppression. "'And so the Lord brought us out of Egypt "'with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm "'with great terror and with signs and wonders.'" That's what God does. That is his nature. It's like God says, I'm setting my people free from slavery and from oppression. I'm demonstrating an aspect of my kingdom, an aspect of my reign, of my nature in setting the downtrodden free. They come out of Egypt. They're in the desert, led by Moses, and God gave the people through Moses a set of instructions this is how I want you to live, basically. This is how people who are subject to my rule and my reign live. Uh, this is how my will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And among the various things the Lord commanded his people to, uh, you know, to do, he talked about this issue of how to treat the poor. If you've got a Bible, you could turn with me to Deuteronomy 15. And beginning at verse 4, it says this. However, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. In other words, if you fully obey my commands... In this new land, I'm settling in, I will richly bless you. You're going to prosper. There will be plenty of wealth to go around. There will be plenty of blessing, plenty of prosperity to go around. But he continues then with a backup plan. If anyone is poor among your people in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard hearted or tight fisted towards them. Rather, be open handed. In other words, share what you have. If God has given you prosperity, has poured out wealth and blessing into your hand, then keep your hand open. Don't grip onto it for yourself. Don't become tight fisted. He continues then in verse 8 Rather be open handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near. So that you do not show ill will towards the needy among your people and give them nothing. And he's referring there to the beginning of the chapter, chapter 15, which talks about every seven years, there was the year of cancelling of debts. And uh, the slate was just wiped clean. If you owed someone within the nation, it was wiped clean. And that was God setting up a system to prevent the ever-widening gap between the rich and the poor. And it wasn't that they got into debt because they you know, got a bad credit card shopping habit or something. It wasn't because of that, rather the poor in the land were living so hand to mouth, if they had a tiny small holding, bit of land, a a small crop failure, some other problem like that would actually drop them, sometimes below survival level, and so they had to borrow just to make it through. And he says, be careful not to think this wicked thought to yourself, you know, it's the sixth year, six and a half years into this seven year period. Perhaps I won't lend this poor person something because they're not going to be able to pay very much of it back before the seven years is up. Perhaps I'll wait just a few months and then I'll lend them the beginning of the next seven years and then probably I'll get repaid. And he says, don't, don't do that. Uh, verse nine, be careful not to harbor this wicked thought and so on. They may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. And this way, my society, the society we're setting up in the promised land, will thrive and no one will be in poverty. And not only that, but I will bless you even more. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. But here's the reality. There will always be poor people in the land and therefore I command you to be open-handed towards those of your people who are poor and needy in the land. Pretty clear teaching up front there. And then he set up, Uh, through Moses, the law in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, various things, instructions for the people. And if you want references, you can catch them on the screen here. During the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused, then the poor among your people may get food from it. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor would come along after the harvesters and pick up all the stuff that was left. If any of your own people become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner or a stranger. When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, this was a special extra tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Do not deny justice to your poor people, in their lawsuits, and so on. And so God was really pretty clear with the people. Do you you want to know what my will is? The expression, if you like, of my kingdom is, look after the poor. We then come to the reigns of David and Solomon. And in 2 Samuel 8, it says that David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. David did what was just and right, and so there was justice, social justice for all his people, and he did the right thing for them all. And under David's reign, the nation flourished. And injustice, for instance, was addressed there, as he did what was just. Uh, David wrote in Psalm one hundred and forty, "I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy." And David, as a king of Israel, made it his business to do the same thing. Uh, after David's reign, Solomon. It says, as we looked at before, they lived in safety, everyone under their own vine and fig tree, which we saw was a picture of how it looks when we live under God's rule. Of course, there were still poor people in the time of David and Solomon, but it was, it was just about as good as it got for the nation. Solomon wrote proverbs like in 2222, addressing what some of the more wealthy were doing. He says this, do not exploit the poor because they're poor. Do not crush the needy in court for the Lord will take up their case and will exact life for life. God is on the side of the poor and he will fight for them. Proverbs nineteen seventeen: those who are kind to the poor lend to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. But as we saw in the first talk in this series, the people turned away from God's commands, which leads us then on to the prophetic warnings. God sent prophets, men of God who spoke the very words on behalf of God, to warn the nation. And uh, the prophets warned, turn from your idolatry, that was a massive issue for the people, turn from your disobedience, or God will cause another nation to come and conquer us. And it's fascinating just to look at those prophetic warnings with an eye on God's heart for the poor. You remember after King Solomon that the nation of Israel was divided, that the Ten northern tribes and the three, two southern tribes divided. And the southern bunch were called Judah. The north then was called Israel. And they had their own kings that you can follow through the Old Testament there from that point on. Now, the prophet Amos lived at the time leading up to the fall of the northern kingdom into captivity. The Assyrians came along and conquered them. And before that happened, they were warned. God warned them, I'm going to basically take you off into captivity. 1 Chronicles, I think, it talks about uh, raising up someone to take them into captivity. And uh, before that happened, he warned the people over and over through the prophets. For instance, Amos 2 verse 7, they trample the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy. Now Amos was not the most polite of the prophets, uh, introducing the whole concept of causing calling women uh, cows. But uh, anyway, he's got some heat on this subject. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain, and therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine, because. God is about to intervene, and you've been buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Isaiah, who also lived at the time of the Assyrian captivity, wrote this, The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord? Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. And the Lord was basically saying through the prophets Amos and Isaiah, guys, what on earth are you doing? You're doing to your own people what was done once done to you your forefathers in Egypt. You know, and watch out because I will protect the oppressed as I did then just as I protected you when you were oppressed. And Isaiah went to on to say that being a true worshiper of God is a lot more than just Being religious and doing religious stuff and singing and and worshiping and, and fasting and sacrificing and so on. And he says in Isaiah 58, a text many of you will be familiar with Is not this the kind of fasting that I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. And then it continues, and I will reward you. So the prophets were pretty clear. And yet, they ignored the prophets. And in 722 B.C., The northern kingdom was taken into captivity. And particularly those who were taken were the wealthy and the powerful. The poor and the unpowerful were less likely to rebel, and many of them were just left in the land, while people who had been conquered elsewhere were brought into the land of Israel uh, and they settled there. Jeremiah lived about 140 years later. Uh, In the southern kingdom, in the the lead up towards the fall of the southern kingdom, they thought, well, we're safe, we'll be fine. But uh, the Babylonians, who had actually previously beaten up the Assyrians, they came along and they took the southern kingdom, Judah, into exile. And uh, as he warned them of what was going to happen unless they repented, he rebuked the people of Judah. This is Jeremiah saying things like this. On your clothes is found the lifeblood of the innocent poor. The Lord Through Jeremiah is addressing in chapter 22, Josiah's son, Shalom. Now, Josiah was one of Israel's, sorry, probably Judah's actually, great kings. And the Lord says of him that he defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? And he says, but you, Shalom, basically, woe to you, you're oppressing the poor. Interesting little jewel there, giving us an answer to the question, what does it mean to know God? He defended the cause of the poor and needy. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? And as I read that, there were echoes in my mind of Micah 6, verse 8. He has shown all you people what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Echoes again in the New Testament of James 1, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Anyway, just as the northern kingdom, they had ignored it. Even though the northern kingdom were taken into exile, never to return. The people of Judah ignored these prophetic warnings and they were taken into exile. And by the rivers of Babylon, they sat down and wept when they remembered Zion. And they remembered everything the prophets had said. Don't do this, repent, or you're going to be taken into exile. And by then it was all over. And they came to a very sharp realization that God is consistent, that God doesn't change. It's like God said in Egypt, you were the oppressed poor. I rescued you. I warned you not to oppress the poor but to provide for them and you then ignored my warning and so I had you taken into exile. And then as my prophets predicted, after about 70 years in exile, I raised up the king of another nation to free you and enable you then to return to Judah. Now don't oppress the poor again. Look after the poor. And we see this cycle, the history of the people of God through the Old Testament of being the oppressed poor, being rescued by God, being warned not to oppress the poor, oppressing the poor, being taken into captivity, and so on. That cycle rolls on. As we touched on in the first talk in the series, we see pictures of what it will be like when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness in what is called the prophetic promise. And Isaiah, for instance, he paints a picture of a future with no more poverty. We don't have time to even go into that at all today, but you'll find if you read, for instance, chapter 65, a picture of that that incredible future when the kingdom comes. Essentially, what he's saying is, when the kingdom of God is one day fully expressed, there will be no more poverty. And then as we get into the New Testament, of course, we see in Jesus' arrival on the scene, this aspect of the kingdom is expressed. He reads from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, that text that's on the wall over there, he reads in Luke 4, it's recorded for us, that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set their press free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today I am the one that the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on to bring good news to the poor and set the oppressed free. And then in Luke 7, when John the Baptist's disciples asked Jesus, they come and say, are you the one? Are you the Messiah, Are the one in whom the kingdom is coming his answer recalls language from Isaiah again and pointedly ends with the poor as the climax of his statement in Luke 7:22 he says this go back and report to john what you've seen and heard the blind receive sight the lame walk those who have leprosy are cleansed the deaf hear the dead are raised and the good news is preached to the poor proclaimed to the poor A sign of his being the Messiah, the one in whom God's kingdom had arrived, is that it's good news for the poor. And so, what does it mean to be a kingdom person and live out this aspect of the kingdom? To be a follower of Jesus who lives the message, which is good news to the poor. Well, we can't do much better than look again at the text that we read earlier. I'm just going to take the phrases from that text, from Isaiah 58 and just phrase by phrase we'll look at it and then I'll illustrate some of the things that we as a church are doing and uh, it just attempting to obey basically what the scriptures are teaching and you may be just as you listen you might think oh I didn't know we did that That's, I'd, I'd like to get involved with that all the details you can sign up at the information desk if you actually want to get involved and of course there'll be many areas that I won't mention uh, some of you are involved in all sorts of areas of ministry to the poor and it's wider context which I won't be able to mention but I'll just touch on some of them which illustrate these points. First of all, verse 6 there in Isaiah 58. Loose the chains of injustice and set the oppressed free. Some of you are involved in a group called ACT, and it meets on a Sunday afternoon every few weeks, and on our website you can read about it. Uh, It says this, Even in the 21st century, modern slavery is a massive worldwide problem. Research has shown that on average, two children a minute are sold into slavery victims of sexual exploitation are trafficked both from country to country and domestically. Child slaves can be found working on some cocoa plantations or in factories, working back breaking hours in appalling conditions with little or no payment. They're also forced to work as domestic slaves or abducted into rebel armies. It's estimated there are approximately 4,000 trafficked women in the UK some of whom are in Nottingham. And there's a tragic and moving quote on the website there, from a Lithuanian woman who was trafficked to London, and she says this, I feel like they've taken my smile and I can never have it back. Our ACT group partners with the charity Hope for Justice to pray for specific situations around the world, also to explore ways that people can practically get involved in tackling this injustice. Verse six continues, untie the cords of the yoke. Now many people in today's society Uh, find themselves carrying a yoke which is just too heavy for them to bear and they're desperately, they need somebody who can come and untie that and break it off them. There's an area of ministry in the life of our church here called CAP which uh, helps people in situations of often crippling debt which in some cases makes them just feel just utterly suicidal and our staff and volunteers, they help untangle that debt which threatens to crush them under its weight. They, They take off, untie it and break it up and Free people. Verse 7 goes on. Share your food with the hungry... Today we have a welfare system and as a result not many people in our nation are hungry but we all know that people fall through the cracks in that system and some are in desperate need. And so in response as a church we've set up all sorts of areas of ministry like the soup run and the cabin and the arches, food bags and there's, you can always from the information desk, bag hunger it's called. You can take a bag and fill it with the various things and take it to the arches. And there are many other things we do as well. Now I try to join the, the soup run team uh, more or less every year, somewhere around New Year. It was New Year's Day this time that I was down there and it was snowing and it was absolutely freezing and I just just survived the evening just about myself, uh, having been home an hour still with my coat on. I went and had a hot bath just to stop my bones chattering inside of me. I was just frozen to the core. But many of the people there, of course, who were sleeping rough, just, you know, we gave them a hot drink and some stuff, but basically they were going to be out for the night and that's the way they lived. I occasionally pop down to the cabin and uh, I joined him with the team just over a week ago. And it always blesses me just to see, you know, faithful servants caring for those in need. Week in, week out, some people go down and do that. And I was uh, particularly impressed with the, the band, which I think is a regular down there, a six piece band with guitars, two guitars, a bass guitar, even a whole set of drums. Worshipping throughout the, color, the time that we were there, and that worship has gone on now for many, many years and It used to sometimes just be one person with the guitar, sometimes in the sleet i don 't know what I am to the guitar, but you know freezing fingers just just worshipping and I remember a story of a woman called Caroline who told it from this stage that she had been i think at least heroin, if not crack cocaine as well as an alcoholic she 'd been living on the streets for years, and she used to come down to the cabin and she just would spend the evening there and she said she came to faith a while later and she said it was the worship it was the worship i used to just come and just the worship just melted my heart somebody else actually led her to christ but she said it was the power of forgiveness but what began it all was she was just drawn to these people who evidently loved her but it was the worship so we were down there sharing our food with the hungry who turned up to enjoy the company. They ate their fill of pasties and sausage casserole and pasta and wonderful homemade cakes that someone had made. And it was a lovely atmosphere. It was, I think, an intensely loving atmosphere. And, you know, I had a a heart-wrenching conversation with uh, somebody I've known for a number of years down there who, because of his very complex drug addiction, is actually suffering at a level that most of us have never experienced. And if you've never been on the soup run, if you've never been to the cabin, then just go once. You don't have to join the team, but just go once and it'll do something to your soul. It'll mess your soul up, to be honest. Verse seven continues, provide the poor wanderer with shelter. The message translation uses the phrase, the homeless poor. Now I'm not suggesting that we should just take the homeless poor into our homes. It's often a lot more complicated than that. But, we, but can we take a small step? Is there anything we can do? If you have a spare room, maybe the Lord would ask you sometimes to have someone stay who doesn't have a home. Uh, Night stop, um, which facilitates this, makes it much more easy, you know, so you don't have someone come and you can never send them back out. But night stop, uh, someone stays a night, Uh, 16 to 25-year-olds may come back for a second night or whatever, they may do. a number of families in the church who would actually have the same person. And uh, we've been a host for that for a number of years and we've met all sorts of people in all sorts of tragic situations and, um, you know, often out sleeping rough and so on. Last summer, we sat and we watched the BBC One's program, Famous, Rich and Homeless, where a number of celebrities spent 10 days sleeping rough and many of them couldn't take that whole 10 days. And watching the program with us was a young woman who had earlier that week been sleeping up near the pitcher and piano uh, in the lace market. And in the middle of the night, she had had to flee. She'd had to just leave everything, leave her sleeping bag, leave all her belongings, just run when a group of drunk lag- lads tried to grab her. And she was just convinced she was going to be raped, but she managed to get away. And so watching that program that night was a somewhat moving experience, but also a rather surreal experience. The, the stark reality of life of homeless people being played out on our television screen and at the same time on our sofa. Cedar House, which last year as a church, we put a lot of money in and also a lot of voluntary time into establishing. Now houses about 10 vulnerable young women at a time and they roll through. There's many more than that in a year. And it involves a number of you here, I know as staff and also as volunteers there. In so many ways, it is a shelter. It's giving shelter to those women who need a safe place to live. I think of Arch's furniture. You know, one of the many things they do is distribute furniture. That warehouse over there is now pretty much full of furniture. And, you know, providing shelter includes providing people with a home. And, you know, some people, especially if they come through the process of seeking asylum, may get housed by the council or whoever houses them. But that, that space they're given may just be a space. It may just have bare floorboards, no carpet, no bed, no tables, no chest of drawers, no wardrobes, no nothing. And they'll go in there and, and people from here, drivers have gone and found perhaps a whole family sleeping on a pile of clothes. Not a stick of furniture and not a carpet in there. And they've been able to furnish that place. And so, I don't know how many it is, it's uh, between one and 2,000 pieces of furniture probably a year are going out uh, and being delivered to people, you know, to give them a home. Verse 7 continues, when you see the naked to clothe them alongside the incredible other ministries that the Arches does down there, uh, of the couple of thousand people a year who come down to the Arches to be served, probably over one and a half thousand of them receive clothing. And so there there are clothes that would otherwise be still hanging in our wardrobes unused. They're now being worn, actually, by thousands of people, many of whom only had the clothes that they had on when they first walked into the Arches. And so, as we finish in verse 10, spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and oppressed. Spending yourself is a lot more than just caring a little bit. It's actually caring in a way that costs us, caring in a way that inconveniences us. And so the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, exhorts us to spend our lives on those in need. As a church, we invest tens of thousands each year of the money that you give in areas which care for those in need. We also invest tens of thousands of voluntary hours each year in these ministries, and it thrills my heart, you know, to, to know that actually the majority of you, the majority of people in the church serve those in need in some capacity. It may be that twice a year you make sandwiches for the soup run. It may be that you go out most weeks to the prisons or something else, but most of the church is involved in doing this. And I know it thrills God's heart to see so many people involved. Not all of us, of course, will find ourselves serving in these areas. There's a lot more happening in the life of the church than just compassion ministries. There's a ton of other stuff that has to happen and is extremely valuable. We need people leading groups. We need people looking after our youth and our children and on and on. But whether you are on some rota, whether I'm on some rota or not, I just want to encourage every one of us to keep our eyes open and our ears open to the Lord watching and listening for what he's doing in extending his kingdom and engaging with that as we sense his prompting when injustice, when oppression, when poverty comes across our path. When we come across needs which we're in a position to meet and we sense God is prompting us to meet them, there will always be more need than we can meet, but when we sense God prompting, let's not shy away, let's not shy away from the inconvenience. I'll finish with a true story told by Tony Campolo Have I got the details more or less right? It's about a man called Joe. A man whose heart was captured by God's heart for those in need. And he was a man who represented his Lord well. And Joe served at a Salvation Army hostel. And every spare hour he was there and he would be, uh, you know, Caring for people who were drunk and clearing up their vomit, he would be, um, you know, serving uh, in in all sorts of ways. There, serving them stuff. He learned their names as individuals. He cared for people. He listened to people. He gave people dignity when no one would give them the time of day. He loved people. And then he died. And there was a young homeless guy who was there in the Salvation Army hospital, having heard that Joe had died and missing him. And he was just. Just sobbing. And one of the staff members, I guess, went up and said, you know, how, how are you? And he said, look, I miss Joe. He was everything to me. He was the only person I knew who really cared for me. He was just amazing. And now he's gone. And the staff member said, you know, the person you really need to meet is Jesus. And whereupon the young man looked up and he said, is he like Joe?